Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we're completing a series of podcasts with presentations from the Transition Cow Mini Symposia presented prior to the 2022 Cornell Nutrition Conference. Before we dig in, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Clay, uh, thanks for joining us here once again. And do you have any uh, interesting in your glass tonight? I I do. I'm back back <laughs> to my old standard here. I've, yeah. I've got some hard cider tonight. That's uh, a big glass of cider, though. I'm glad to see that. That is. What's in uh, what's in your glass tonight, Scott? So tonight, in honor of uh, Dr. White, I'm having uh, a whiskey old fashioned. Now, I will apologize, Heather. There's no cherry in the glass. I know that uh, yours usually do, but um, I just didn't have one. Miss Mary didn't have one in the cupboard, so we're going to go without. But we do have the whiskey old fashioned. So, uh, Clay, um, in conclusion of this great series of podcasts, um, cheers. Cheers. Tonight's PubCast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit balchem.com to learn more. In this podcast, we get to hear Dr. Heather White as she shares the newest transition cow research completed at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Clay, what should the audience be looking for as they listen to the presentation? Yeah, a few different things here. So, um, you know, first of all, the uh, the production level of these cows. These were really high producing cows in this study. So we really had a couple of unique things when we designed this experiment um, with Dr. White, that was one piece we were looking at. You know, will we see the same response to room protected choline in in, hot, in these really high producing cows? The other unique a aspect to it was we were looking at the um, at, at potential benefits in the calves born to these cows. First of all, Holstein heifer calves. But there also were were beef on dairy calves in this experiment as well. We never that had never been looked at before. So that that was a that was a second unique aspect to to this particular study um, that we that we did with Heather. Excellent, excellent lead in. So let's get right down to it. Let's hear what Dr. White has to say. What I was asked to talk about were some new insights from what we've been working on at University of Wisconsin and Transition Cow Research, which I have uh, aptly and kind of comically renamed, AKA what we did during COVID. Uh, I'll get to that in just a few minutes, but you'll see that we did the largest study we've ever done uh, under the context and pretense of what it took to do research during COVID. Um, you all know what it was like to be out in the field, and so uh, we'll share some of the things that we worked on. But before I jump right into that, I certainly don't have to tell you that the transition to lactation period is a period of great challenge, but also a period of great opportunity, right? This is where what we do with nutrition and management can have some of the biggest impacts. 
Now the driver on that potential for impact is largely due to negative energy balance and negative nutrient balance. So when the cow is prepartum, she's a dry cow, she's an easy keeper, right? Sometimes a little too easy, that's a different issue. But for the most part, she can consume here in yellow more than what's required, the blue line. And so she's in positive energy balance. But as she enters parturition, as she approaches the time of calving, her energy requirement drastically increases and it exceeds what she can consume then. She goes into negative energy balance. And we always talk about this being negative energy balance, but it's not just energy, right? It's negative glucose balance, it's negative amino acid balance, it's ma negative macro and micronutrient balance. And so we've got to work harder to make every bite she's consuming count. Now, what we focus on in my lab is how can we take this period of negative nutrient balance and better help the cow meet her needs? So she has adaptive mechanisms that allow her to shift what precursors or what feed ingredients, what rumen products she'll use to meet the needs of lactation. And how do we take advantage of that or how do we help work with her so that she can do that more efficiently? So if we think about the context of the liver, when we change what the precursors that she's predominantly using are, there's a shift in how those nutrients are partitioned and there's a shift in those pathways. So at a 30,000 foot view, if we have the liver, and we've heard some of this today, so I'm just gonna highlight here, we know we need glucose production and that's typically from propionate, lactate, some amino acids, not all, can be used for glucose production. But as feed intake is decreased, we lose some of those contributions and we have contributions from other sources like glycerol from mobilized adipose tissue. Now, that's still a fairly small contribution to glucose, and we know the biggest contribution of fat mobilization as she's milking off her back, as we say, is the energy that's coming from non-esterified fatty acids, okay? Those fatty acids go to the liver, and in an ideal world are completely oxidized through the TCA cycle for energy. But there is a capacity to this, there's a limit, right? We can think of it as a carousel. So how many people have taken kids or grandkids to ride a carousel? And what determines how long you wait in line or how many kids get to ride the carousel? How many animals are on the carousel, right? So what happens when you're the next in line and all the horses are full? Depends on when the last time you fed the kid is and how tired they are, right? There has to be some alternative fates. So either you can wait for a few turns of the carousel or you can go find something else to do or dig a snack out of a magic bag, right? So the liver has the same capacity to pivot. These building blocks of fatty acids can be used and oxidized for energy, but they can also have alternative fades. And this balance is key. So two of those alternative fades is they can be incompletely oxidized through ketogenesis. We don't harness as much energy through this pathway, but ketone bodies and other uh, ketone bodies are another form of energy uh, that can be exported from the liver. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, they can also be re-esterified as triglycerides. And we heard Jose talk about stored liver lipids. Um, and so these three have a balance within them. 
Now, historically, we've thought about ketone bodies or ketogenesis and triglyceride storage as being all negative, but we're learning it's not purely a bad thing. So we heard Mike talk a lot about the energy demands and the energy requirements of the liver of producing protein in any of those tissues, right? TCA cycle is what's producing the energy for most of that, but the liver cannot export energy, ATP or energy equivalents, NADs, from the liver for use by other tissues. In contrast, ketone bodies can be exported. So those can be shipped to other tissues like the mammary gland, the central nervous system, and can be used for energy. We're also learning through some work I won't share today, but some basic mechanistic work we've been doing along with others uh, across species, that the triglycerides may be transiently stored. So we may be able to help re-harness those later when the liver has more capacity, okay? So my point from this is that all three have a role, and this is a part of an adapted response to transition to lactation or to negative energy balance. Now, that means our job is to find the nutrients that can help modulate these pathways, to find the ways that we can shift the balance or the flux between the three uh, and the other pathways going on in the liver so that we can help the cow be efficient and productive along with remaining healthy. All right, so that brings me to what I'm gonna talk about today. One of those nutrients that can modulate several of these pathways uh, is choline, and I'll share the impact of rumen-protected choline supplementation on lactation performance. A little bit high level of where we think the mechanism of that is coming from, and then also looking at the calves or the offspring that were exposed to the choline in utero. So several people have highlighted this meta-analysis, so it saves me some time, leaving more time to share the good data. Uh, but basically, a meta-analysis of choline studies had demonstrated that there is a consistent positive impact on milk yield and energy-corrected milk, which is great to know that across the literature, the pattern's the same. But what we were looking at when we focused on this is there are very few, in fact, only one study that feeds this higher level of choline. And so we wanted to do a study where we teased out if a higher dose of choline prepartum would result in a difference in response to just the standard dose fed pre and postpartum. And that's when we started the study. So we were planning this study early 2019, maybe the end of 18. And so when everything in the world is hunky-dory, you don't hesitate to plan the biggest study you've ever done with, oh, say, 100-plus cows and their calves and multiple diets. At some point on farm, we were feeding eight different diets when we had cows that were prepartum and postpartum, uh, not to mention the taking care of the calves. And so this was a really fun study to do for a lot of reasons. It was also a challenging study for some others. But we ended up enrolling 116 multiparous animals. We fed them from 21 days before anticipated calving. Uh, and there's a few interesting things I want to point out. The first one is that across the studies in the literature, most of the time when we feed something like choline or methionine or anything else uh, that's a transition supplement, we tend to top dress it. You hear the studies that are, we top dress the choline, we put it on, maybe we mixed it in a little. And we know that that response is different than if we truly mix it in on farm. How many of you have top dressed something on a farm you're actually working with? Once in a great while, we get the opportunity where we can do that, right? How many of you would prefer to mix it into a TMR? 
All right, so we wanted to mimic that aspect because we don't have a lot of research that has actually mixed it in the TMR. Now, what's that mean? That means that the cows ate the amount of choline that is associated with how much feed they ate, right? So that introduces a little bit of variance in a research world, but that variance actually mimics what's happening in the real world. So if a cow ate more or less than we had formulated for, more or less than the average, then she may have consumed more or less choline than the average. So we actually have a whole nother set of linear analyses that I won't dig into today uh, because the response is the same regardless of how we analyze it. So what we did was we broke prepartum treatments into four groups, control, no RPC, uh, RPC one regular dose. So this is the recommended dose of the reassure product. And then you heard a little bit about this uh, product uh, from Barry, this RPC two, I call it, which is a higher concentrate product. Space is valuable in the ration. You all know that, right? So if we have a higher concentrate product, then I can feed more of it without changing every other aspect of the diet. So that's how we use this to our advantage here. So we have the recommended dose of RPC2. We also have a high dose. These were the prepartum doses. And prepartum, we have individual cow feed intake. And then we increased that prepartum RPC. Postpartum, they went to the default, if you will. Okay, so control stayed control, no RPC. If they were RPC1 prepartum, they had RPC2, RPC1 postpartum. And regardless of which dose they got of RPC2 prepartum, they got the recommended dose postpartum. So our goal was only to investigate the change of the prepartum dose. Okay? Postpartum, they were also housed in groups of eight and fed for 21 days. After the 21-day period, we moved them into groups of 16. We mixed them up. We fed them the herd diet with no uh, rumen-protected choline, so just our regular herd uh, ration. All right, so this is the energy corrected milk from that study. I'll take a second to orient you because all of these figures will be in the same order, and all of the cow data will have the same colors. So control is red, and then RPC1 regular dose, RPC2 regular dose, and then RPC2 high dose in that order, yellow, green, and blue. So what we observed was during the 21 days we were feeding the choline, cows increased milk as expected. We called this the supplementation period, but there was no significant difference of treatment. Okay. Now, what we did observe was a significant effect uh, during what I call the carryover effect, although I'm really fond of Barry's hangover effect. I kind of like that. I might steal that, Barry. Um, but this hangover effect, we saw a significant increase in energy corrected milk, um, 4.6 pounds a day advantage. It was about two kilos, so very consistent uh, with what we've seen in the meta-analysis and across the other studies. But I was baffled. Why did the cows not respond immediately like they have in every other study? What did we do wrong? Uh, so I'm looking at this data and I keep looking at how steep this milk production increase was in the beginning. And I had to ask myself, do I think that cows could really have rapidly increased that much more during that period? Are they producing at a level where it takes time to see that advantage? And so then my savvy PhD student went back to the meta-analysis and said, well, our cows are making 33% more milk than the average in the meta-analysis. 
and in fact, you're making 20% more milk than any other study in the meta-analysis. And that really gave me a pause to think about the scale in this study. So what I have here are the milk yield and the ECM from the meta-analysis. Again, you've seen these figures. And then the supplementation period for our study and the post-supplementation period. Uh, so these cows were making a ton of milk right off the bat. They were doing what we wanted them to do. And I think that's why we didn't observe an increase until the post-supplementation period. So when we calculated out, uh, ECM was 37% greater, but we still saw, if I go back here, we still saw that 4.6 pounds per day advantage with the uh, regular dose supplementations. All right, so how is this happening? What's the mechanism of choline to have an impact and have that carryover or hangover effect uh, longer term once we're done feeding it and we're still observing benefits. Historically, we thought this was primarily due to liver lipids. And the question to Barry at the end there, he got at this. We thought that choline's role as phosphatidylcholine facilitating VLDL export was a key. It was keeping cows from having fat accumulation. And this is just general data across cows, no treatments here. We know that there's a characteristic increase in liver lipids around the time of calving and that cows recover from that, uh, which is pretty unique to cows compared to other species. For example, in humans, it's really hard to get a reduction in liver lipids without surgery or pretty significant diet and exercise interventions. We also know that if we induce fatty liver, there's a protective effect from choline. A lot of that was Rick Grummer's work. Uh, Jose presented some of this earlier out of Florida showing the same thing. And so if that's, if that's it, then that should be able to explain it all. And so a few years ago, we uh, did some cell culture work. And when we culture hepatocytes, bovine hepatocytes, each of these blue nuclei is a liver cell, uh, we can induce the same kind of lipidosis that we see in the transition cow. We put fatty acids in the culture that mimic what are circulating in the cow at transition, uh, and those cells will take up and accumulate fat. So this is an, a useful model. Like Barry pointed out, cell culture is a model. It's not perfect, but it gives us really valuable insights. And so when we do that work, we can see that choline supplementation increases oxidative capacity, increases energy output, uh, decreases ketone bodies or BHB, decreases triglyceride accumulation, and can increase gluconeogenesis and VLDL export. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to show you all the metabolites we looked at in our cow study, but for the most part, the circulating markers that we can measure in the cow agreed with this. And so that seems a pretty realistic representation of what's happening. So when we supplement choline, we're having an impact on liver metabolism. And that impact at the time seems to have a long lasting effect. So even though we're only feeding it in the prepartum and postpartum time period, we're able to influence long lasting metabolic capacity of the liver, which is really powerful if we think about what we're asking her to do as she approaches peak lactation. But there's another way that we've learned that choline has an effect, and that's as a methyl donor. So methyl donors are simply a labile methyl group, so a carbon with three hydrogens. But the important part is that it's donatable, okay? So not every molecule that has a carbon is a methyl donor. This is a, a carbon with three hydrogens that I can give to you to another molecule 
and donate it, okay? So there are some pretty key methyl donors that are important to us in diets. Methionine has a methyl group here. Choline has three methyl groups, as does betaine. And then folate, arguably the most important methyl donor in human nutrition, has one as well. So these methyl donors have a role, and I'm not going to go into it today, but this is where we get into the interactions of choline and methionine, and we hear about sparing and methyl donating. But it's also where we probably have the most potential to influence long-lasting effects on liver metabolism and the offspring. So we have to peek into other species a little bit to see what happens when we deplete methyl groups. A lack of methyl donors across species, a lot of this done in rodents, results in increased liver inflammation, decreased liver oxidation, and decreased methyl donation. So what does that mean when we think about DNA in a developing fetus that is constantly being methylated? So there's a high level of methylation required in a developing fetus or developing offspring. And that this prepartum cow that's getting ready to take on this metabolic challenge of making 150 pounds of milk a day pretty quickly is also developing a fetus that is importantly the next generation for our lactating herd, okay? So what does that mean to the calf in utero? Now there was some work out of Florida and uh, I won't spend long on this, but it was really supportive that we should not ignore the calf. I am guilty as a transition cow nutritionist, I ignored the calf completely uh, until about two years ago. So I am part of the group that just thought, oh, we don't need to worry about the calf. Although fetal programming was always really intriguing to me, it just wasn't a part of our studies. So in this study, we uh, made sure to follow them based on some work out of Florida that showed improved growth. This was in heifer calves born to dams fed choline and also in the bull calves, uh, regardless of if they did an LPS challenge or not. Okay. They interestingly also observed benefits to the calf health. So this shown here, certainly just a representative tidbit of their data. They have quite a bit of data from these studies that if calves were exposed to choline in utero, they had reduced percent of fevers, okay? And they had improved immune maturation and lung development. So this was enough to make us, uh, to help us justify looking at the calves in our study. And I mentioned it was the biggest study we ever did. So that carried on, we followed all of the calves. Um, just like many of the farms across the country, our research farm currently breeds the bottom half of our our genetics to beef semen. Are, is that pretty commonplace around here at this point? Um, I think in Wisconsin, there is a very nominal number of farms not doing this. So we have uh, the female Holstein calves about 50%. And then we had about 50% male and female Angus by Holstein cross calves. We did make sure that our maternal treatments were balanced by what type of calf the cow was carrying, so that was taken care of. Now I wanna take a few minutes to talk about how we did this. Um, Barry noted colostrum and differences in milk based on who's contributing or who had, who had calved at that time. In our study, we ensured that calves received colostrum from the same treatment that her dam was on. So she didn't receive her dam's colostrum, 
she received colostrum from another dam in that treatment group, okay? We did have an increase in colostrum yield with choline supplementation, which Barry mentioned as well, while we had maintained uh, BRICS readings. So same quality, but more of it, which the farm staff was pretty happy about because they don't like it when we do things that decrease colostrum volume. They get pretty antsy. Um, the other thing we did was we fed milk replacer. So we didn't want the fluctuations. We typically at our research farm feed pasteurized waste milk. We didn't want the variations of choline content depending on what cows had contributed. And so we fed a milk replacer that had a choline uh, concentration intentionally meant to match what's in milk. So not an artificially high supplemental choline concentration because we really wanted to focus on the effect of dam on this. All right, so with that milk uh, replacer, we had a step up program. So for weeks one and two, they received an amount of milk replacer. Then they stepped up in amount. So that's why I have growth broken out here in one to two and then three to eight weeks because that represents when there was the step up. So we observed no difference in birth weight by dam treatment, but we did observe a tendency for improved growth in one to two weeks, um, but we did not see that in three to eight weeks. Now, how many people here work with calves and will tell me that everything always goes perfectly when you're feeding calves? <clears throat> it didn't for us either. So challenges happen on farm, even if they are on a research study, it turns out they don't read the memo that says calves must remain healthy. Um, they definitely did not read that memo for us. So uh, at this point, uh, for context, it was about January, February in Wisconsin, uh, doing a calf study while masked and six foot distanced uh, because we were under restrictions. Um, and the calves started getting bloat, okay? So this was a new territory for us. We were feeding a high plane of nutrition. Uh, to these calves and temperature was definitely fighting against us on milk replacer. So we worked with the calf crew uh, and got it reined in pretty quickly, but we did have quite a bit of bloat that happened in the calves. And so we, we dug into that a little bit more to see what was going on and to see what, uh, what we could learn from it. So first of all, there was no evidence of a treatment effect on bloat, respiratory uh, score or fecal score. So we were monitoring all of these things no difference by treatment, uh, and there was no interaction of the maternal treatment and bloat on that one to two weeks average daily gain. We wanted to make sure that wasn't just a product of bloat and there wasn't uh, an effect there. But what was really interesting was that we had an interaction of maternal treatment and bloat on calf serum LBP, okay? So we heard a little bit about LPS challenge earlier, and we also heard a little bit about natural LPS that would happen through leaky gut. LPS binding protein or LBP is one of the markers we can use to tell us how, how strong the gut integrity is and if there might be a challenge from that. And so when we looked at the control treatment, so how I have it split out here is the lighter bar are calves that had no bloat. They had a bloat score of zero. Okay? And the darker bar are the calves within that maternal treatment group that had a bloat score of one or more. So they might've refused milk, they might've had a more severe symptom of bloat. And what we saw was as we would expect, the control, the calves of control dams that had bloat had higher LBP. This didn't surprise us at all. 
What did surprise us was that when we looked at the calves from the dams fed choline, we did not observe that increase in LBP, okay? And so in this way, the calves seem to be more resilient to that naturally occurring challenge. Now this is retrospective. This is not a challenge we induced. We didn't do an LPS challenge like Barry's group did, but it's something that would happen naturally and we would see on farm. And so we were really interested to dig into that and to see that result. Um, and so the overall, ten, or the overall interaction was a tendency. This difference was significant uh, and there was no significant difference or tendency between uh, the bl no bloat and bloat in the choline treated offs or the choline calves born to choline treated dams. All right. So what about the beef cross calves? So when we uh, dug into this data, I'll break out things that had an interaction by male and female, because I think one of the things we need the most right now is some baseline data. At least in Wisconsin, we're trying to figure out what our benchmarks should be. Uh, and so part of the role of this data was to provide some of that. So I have male and female birth weights. Uh, there's a sex effect on birth weight as we would expect, but no treatment effect. No treatment effect on average daily gain one to two weeks. Again, then we have the step up in how much milk replacer they received. Uh, and we had a significant time by interaction, uh, primarily driven by male calves that were growing uh, faster in a linear manner by maternal choline dose, okay? Now, was this because of the methylation that I postulated in the beginning? Were we able to see a difference in methylation that can explain these differences in patterns of growth in the calves? Yes, in the male cross calves, there was a increased global methylation pattern observed, but not in the female calves. Okay, so that doesn't explain the changes in growth in the female calves. Although there were also differences in energy growth and gut integrity markers. Uh, so that's all data I have if you're interested in, but for the sake of time, don't have all spelled out here. This was also, uh, although a little bit surprising, not totally surprising because we know across species and different maternal diets that male offspring tend to have more pronounced methylation patterns with and without dietary intervention. So this could be a sex effect. It could also be that since we only measured global methylation, it wasn't sensitive enough to detect it. So we did not dig into specific gene expression data here. But we did follow the beef cross calves even further. So it is a lesser known fact that my master's degree is actually in meat science. And I spent a lot of time working with carcass quality in pigs and beef cattle uh, before my co-mentor pulled me over to the dairy cow side of things. So this was one of those projects that came full circle because it let me go back towards something that I had spent a lot of time doing before. So we followed these beef cross calves until they could no longer be called calves. We followed them out all the way to processing. But around uh, the time eight, uh, eight to 10 months of age, we actually put them in a feed efficiency study to look at what their growth was during that uh, growing phase. So overall, two to nine months, we saw a linear increase in uh, weight. Okay, this is here in kilograms. Uh, based on maternal choline treatment. So the more choline the dam consumed, uh, the more those calves weighed across time, two to nine months. Uh, and although linearly significant, uh, these numbers are fairly close here. 
but a little bit in change in stature of the animal by height. When we put them into that individually housed feed efficiency part of the study, we did observe treatment by sex interactions uh, that changed dry matter intake and feed conversion rate. Um, and so again, mostly occurring within the males. Uh, again, not super surprising, but providing good benchmark or baseline data for, for those that are looking at beef cross animals. We did find that there was increasing RPC uh, effects to linearly decrease plasma insulin and tend to decrease glucose concentrations in these animals, which was intriguing enough that we wanted to follow them out uh, to processing. And so we worked with one of our regional processors. We actually raised these animals all the way up and sent them off for processing to collect data. So not super intense data. This is all stuff available from the packing plant. Uh, but at 16 months of age, there was a sex effect on uh, finished live weight, no treatment effect from the maternal treatment. Um, and you could see that we did fairly decent on these carcasses grading out, uh, mostly choice uh, and some prime carcasses. And so for farms looking to diversify their income stream, we need to make sure these animals are desirable enough to, to get uh, taken out by a processor. So that was interesting. What was even more intriguing was that we did in fact shift marbling score, okay? So at 16 months, uh, the marbling scores are shown here, but there was a linear increase in marbling score that was significant with RPC in the maternal diet. What's the most interesting about this is not just that we increased it numerically or that there was a difference because we're not getting compensated on this yet, at least not in our region, What's intriguing though is across the literature, there are no nutritional interventions that can improve marbling score. We can certainly wreck it, right? We're raising beef animals. Those animals have a genetic potential for their marbling score. And then we're trying to not damage that. We're trying to not decrease it. But this in utero exposure seems to be really, uh, seems to have some potential to increase marbling score certainly needs to be repeated, uh, but very intriguing to us. All right, so to wrap up again, um, I have a lot more data from this study, but I hear lunch is next, and I'm pretty sure there'd be a mutiny if I showed you all of it. Uh, so if you have questions about specific parts of it, please come see me. Uh, the first paper is submitted, so it should be out soon. Uh, the paper on the calves is in preparation. I'm happy to talk through any of the data but big picture stuff here, strategic interventions nutritionally during the transition period can have long-term impacts on cow and calf. The mechanism of RPC choline action is through improved liver function. This seems to be much more involved than the traditional liver lipids that we used to think of as being the benefit of choline supplementation. Supplementation during the transition period tended to increase energy corrected milk and that was consistent with the amount of increase we've seen across the literature, even though these cows were making quite a bit more milk than what was in the meta-analysis. So even those highest producing cow, uh, herds you're working with, um, our data would support that you should see an increase in milk there, energy corrected milk. The postpartum production uh, relative to prepartum intake, which I didn't share, uh, but was actually decreased with choline supplementation, 
together with some of those long-lasting metabolic effects, suggest that there are changes in metabolism and nutrient use efficiency. This is really intriguing for me because I'm a part of a national and international feed efficiency uh, grant. And so this is something that we spend a lot of our time working on. Supplementation of cows with RPC choline also improves calf growth, immune function, and metabolic health, and supported carcass quality in the uh, beef by dairy cross calves. And higher supplementation rates, higher than the recommended dose, if you're thinking about what you feed in the field, of RPC resulted in further benefits in the calves, but not additional benefits in the cows. And then if I could take the liberty as the last speaker of tying together uh, across all of the talks, uh, we had some great talks this morning. It's always fun to follow talks that take care of all the background work so you can jump right into data. What are our take home messages here? So I think one thing that's clear is that there's consistent postpartum production benefits observed with choline supplementation in the transition period. That seems to be the case even in very high producing cows and with cows with the highest genetic merit for milk. So Barry commented on a PTA interaction, PTA for milk, PTA for somatic cell. We dug into that in our data as well, and we did not observe the same interaction he did when we accounted for the difference in lactation. So again, thinking about uh, the PTA of milk as we have uh, younger animals that are more genetically advanced, when we account for lactation, we don't see those same effects. So I think that's uh, something we've got to think about is always feeding the herds that we have in front of us. Um, and then also, regardless of body condition score, Jose showed that really well. How is this happening? Um, I think there's enough mechanistic data now that it's clear it's through shifts in metabolism and nutrient partitioning to support improved or increased production and either maintained or improved health. Okay, so depending on the cow study, sometimes we see improvements in health on a clinical or subclinical basis. Other times we see changes in the metabolic markers of those. In utero programming provides added benefits to the calves, keeping in mind that when we're supplementing a prepartum cow, we've got our next generation developing in utero. The benefits on calf growth and health are observed with maternal choline supplementation. We have improved feed efficiency to finish weight and improved marbling and Angus by Holstein animals. So again, this is something a lot of producers are doing to diversify their income stream. It's great to have this as an added thought. Um, and I would add these things, calf health, marbling, transition cow health, those are things we don't usually account for in our ROI, right? When we're calculating out if something is uh, economically viable or efficient, we're not accounting for the morale buster that is sick calves. But I lived that on our research farm. I know many of you have when you have a lot of sick calves or when you have sick postpartum cows, it can really have havoc on the farm and morale. So those are things that I think are worth thinking about, even if we don't count the sense on those. How is this happening? Likely through increased colostrum yield. We have that in two studies now, berries and ours. Increased global methylation patterns and changes in calf metabolism. So both direct and indirect effects of being in that in utero environment during choline uh, treatment to the dam. So with that, I uh, want to acknowledge the team that did this. No study can be done without a great team of students and farm staff. Certainly, I had a great team during this. Uh, Henry Holdorf was the lead PhD student on this study. Uh, he's since completed his dissertation, now works at Purina Nutrition. 
Uh, Billy Brown was a postdoc in my lab, now assistant professor at Kansas State. Had a whole other team of people that helped with the study. Uh, during COVID, we had to have A team and we had to have B team that was completely naive to A team. So they did the stuff in the lab and on the computer so they could go out to the farm if we needed them. Uh, and I was out at the farm about two or three days a week helping uh, execute this one. Um, showed some work from Florida, so I want to acknowledge those collaborators there and as always grateful for the funding sources that allow us to do the research we do. So Heather, what's the response been to the, uh, the beef on dairy uh, data in Wisconsin? You've talked about yeah. this some of Wisconsin. So, so I have. I, we had a couple regional meetings that I shared some of the data. It's been pretty exciting. One, because everybody's doing it. Nobody knows what to benchmark it to. So people are just excited to see some data they can compare to. Um, and two, when I presented at a meeting that was predominantly beef cattle nutritionists and researchers, they, uh, they were really excited about the marbling data. I was in my mind underselling that a little bit. Um, and they were super excited that we may have a way to improve marbling because it's something, as I said, there's not a nutritional intervention. For us in the dairy world, those are free benefits in my mind, right? Because we're feeding the transition cow based on the impact to her. If we can have an impact on calves, that's, that's a bonus. Heather, a consistent response in liver of cows is an increase in glycogen content. What are your thoughts on the mechanisms for that? Yeah, thanks, Jose. That's a good question. We can pause going to lunch and answer your question here. So uh, the glycogen is really interesting. That was something I measured in grad school. And for some reason, I feel like there's a period of time that we stopped measuring it. And then you recently restarted, Jose. Um, it is consistent response, and we do observe it in our cell culture model as well. Um, I think the mechanism of that is through increased nutrient partitioning through gluconeogenesis. In the cell culture model, we don't have the mammary glands stealing all the glucose, so we can study it kind of as a pathway itself. And there does seem to be an ability to upregulate uh, that. That's kind of important if we think about glycogen's role as a really transient glucose precursor. It's a quick response uh, mechanism. Uh, and so that's interesting. Unfortunately, we were not able to do biopsies during this study, so I can't tell you if it happened here. Uh, but at least in the cell culture work, I think the pathway or the mechanism is through um, the nutrient partitioning, shifting more carbon through gluconeogenesis. That was a great presentation, and this is also last call. Dr. White had a great summary of the data behind choline that shows the impact across multiple generations. She also hit on something very inter interesting. She said, we don't usually account for these benefits when calculating the ROI of an intervention. Um, how should nutritionists account for this going forward? Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niasher Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash Niacher. So there obviously are, there obviously are milk production benefits. Um, those are easier to calculate, um, but we do need to keep in mind these carryover benefits in production, carryover or the hangover from, from positive hangover from, from these, these, uh, cows being, being fed room and protected choline. So, you know, we, we've measured full lactation responses in these cows now. So, 
in uh, in uh, Dr. White's study, uh, we measure response out through 105 days, but we've done it throughout throughout through 280 days. Those responses stay for the full lactation. So we need to take into account really a, a full lactation milk yield benefit. First of all, secondly, the more we're learning about um, benefits in the calves born to these cows, you know, we have to start assigning a value to that as well. You know, what, what is that, what is that worth to the dairy? Having, um, having healthier calves that, um, that, that are gaining better, you know, really out to first calving and what benefit would, does that have on, uh, on potential, um, increased milk yield, um, and those resulting heifers. The other piece to look at, of course, are imp improved health benefits. If you look at the meta-analysis that was done uh, out of Jose Santos's lab, and and uh, and Heather refers to that uh, quite a bit during um, during her presentation. Uh, we did, we did see a significant reduction in uh, retained placentas and uh, less clinical mastitis. So there are a lot of things, you know, economically to take into account um, when you're feeding room or protected choline. Clay, the, uh, the research that she shared was, was actually amazing. Yeah, you know, we, we, we typically think of choline or not we – We've heard many times from producers and nutritionists that choline's for problem cows. Right. These weren't problem cows. These were healthy cows and high-producing cows. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so it, it was very interesting. If if you if you look at her data, the um, the milk yield, the milk yield of the cows in this study was thirty percent higher than the than the average of the meta-analysis that was published back in 2020. So these cows, these cows averaged over 122 pounds of milk uh, during the trial. Um, the energy corrected milk yield was 37% higher than the meta-analysis average. So, so they had high components too. I mean, these, these cows were really, were really producing. So, you know, we, we certainly have thought that all along that that all and the meta-analysis shows that that to, no matter what the level of milk production all cows all cows are responding to room protected choline uh what it tells me is you know we're, we're we're nowhere near the full expression of the genetics that are in these cows right the the world record cow uh produced I, I think it was over 78,000 pounds of milk in a lactation. So, that, you know, there's tremendous genetic capacity to make lots of milk and milk components. So if we can supply these limiting nutrients, these required nutrients to the cow when she needs them, we'll, we'll get a more full uh, phenotypic expression of the genetics in these cows. You know, we've been making huge genetic improvements for decades in these cows. So, um, col you know, col choline is certainly one, one nutrient um, required by the transition dairy cow that will help fully, more fully express her genetics. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great summary, Clay. You know, another thing that kind of um, 
you know, uh, caught my ear was the, she, she had a 50% increase in colostrum and that, you know, that uh, on top of what we saw at Dr. Bradford's uh, research where he had an 80% increase in colostrum. Um, what, what's going on there? What, what's causing an increase in colostrum uh, quantity? We, we don't fully know that yet, but uh, we're running some other studies to dig into that more. I think, you know, I think part of what's happening is um, as we're, you know, as we're supplementing. So obviously this is all happening during the prepartum period, right? We're, we're affecting colostrum yield by feeding it the last 21 days before calving. Now we get additional benefits feeding it 21 days post calving, but the colostrum benefits happening pre-calving. So um, we certainly are, you know, we're having positive benefits on liver health. So we're probably increasing glucose production. Actually, I'm sure we are. There's data out there suggesting that. We're increasing glucose production to, you know, to set her up to make more colostrum. We, we do see, you know, we do see some small increases in dry matter intake, and that's all beneficial to this to this prepartum cow, cow, you know, shortly before calving, uh, it certainly makes us wonder, you know, are we are we increasing more secretory cells in that mammary gland and really ramping her up for more production? We do consistently see, you know, increased milk yield in cows uh, that are that are fed rumor protected choline. So it makes sense that colostrum yield would go up. We don't see it in every single study, but uh, We've seen some pretty dramatic increases both at Michigan State and Barry Bradford's work, and and in uh, in Dr. White's work at at the University of Wisconsin. Hmm. Thank you for that, Clay. Uh, Clay, as always, it's been a pleasure uh, hosting these uh, uh, podcasts with you, and I really appreciate your time and insights. As a reminder to our listeners, uh, you can find all four of the podcasts in the New Revelations in Transition Cow Nutrition series on your favorite podcast app uh, or visit balkim.com slash podcast and you can find those on our uh, website. You can also see the complete presentations and download the slide decks at balkim.com slash real science. Just search for the 2022 Cornell Mini Symposia. As always to our loyal listeners, thank you for coming along for more than 60 episodes and sticking with us to explore more topics. Uh, we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Mm -hmm.